This afternoon I proclaim to you the gospel as we confess that in Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 30. And we'll read also in connection with that Article 35 of the Belgian Confession. The last two paragraphs of Article 35. But we begin with Lord's Day 30. And there the church confesses the following from the Word of God. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. So far, our confession will concentrate on the last two questions and answers of Lord's Day 30, and then we turn to Article 35 of the Belgic Confession, in page 515 in the Belgic Confession, the last two paragraphs of that confession. And there we confess the following, although the sacrament is joined together with that which is signified, the latter is not always received by all. The wicked certainly takes the sacrament to his condemnation, but he does not receive the truth of the sacrament. Thus Judas and Simon the sorcerer both received the sacrament, but they did not receive Christ, who is signified by it. He is communicated exclusively to the believers. Finally, we receive this holy sacrament in the congregation of the people of God with humility and reverence as we together commemorate the death of Christ our Savior with thanksgiving and we confess our faith and Christian religion. Therefore, no one should come to this table without careful self-examination, lest by eating this bread and drinking from this cup he eat and drink judgment upon himself. In short, we are moved by the use of this holy sacrament to a fervent love of God and our neighbors. Therefore, we reject as desecrations all additions and condemnable inventions which men have mixed with the sacraments. We declare that we should be content with the ordinance taught by Christ and his apostles, 
and should speak about it as they have spoken so far our confessions. Brothers and sisters in the Lord and boys and girls who belong to him, Sometimes the trusted words and phrases we use to talk about our Christian faith can be taken too far in one way or too far in another way. Take, for example, the statement that we need a personal relationship with Christ in order to be saved. Our faith has to be personal faith, a matter of our own heart, not something we profess because it's a family tradition. No, each one of us is called to personally embrace Christ in living faith, seek our entire life and salvation in him alone. The the thing is, some people have taken that statement about the personal relationship with Christ to mean that your relationship with the Lord is so personal that it is a private relationship with which nobody else has any business at all. Nobody else then has the right to try to give advice about your relationship with Christ or to try to improve it or correct it or give any judgment on it. When someone tries to talk to a person who believes that that is what it's about, then they're told it's none of your business. How dare you tell tell them that their relationship with Christ isn't good or isn't right in this area. Because it is, after all, a personal and private thing. And you see, unfortunately, when one of the occasions when this misunderstanding concerns, concerning the personal relationship with Christ sometimes comes to the fore is at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It happens when the elders exercise oversight and require attestations from sister churches for guests to attend, for instance. And it happens when members are withheld from taking part as a step of church discipline. In both cases, you sometimes you find resentment and resistance. Who are they to tell me that I, have no, that I don't have a relationship with Christ? Why do I need this attestation of doctrine and conduct to take part? What right do you have to keep me from participating? It's up to me to decide about my relationship with Christ, isn't it? Nobody else can get into that, look into that. Congregation, the issue we're talking about concerns the fencing or the guarding of the Lord's Supper then. A lot of churches, I would even say most churches today, don't practice this guarding or fencing anymore. Even though, if you checked out their books, they they still have it on the books somewhere. Churches which want to be and stay reformed are pretty well the only churches which practice it any longer. The guarding of the table. And so it's important for us to know why in the world we do this. And the second and third question and answer of Lord's Day 30 are about that guarding of the Lord's Supper celebration. And I proclaim to you then what we confess from God's word 
about that with this theme. The Lord calls us to guard the Lord's Supper. We see two things. First, the sincere and godly need to take part in the Lord's Supper. And the unbelieving and ungodly must be kept from the Lord's Supper. First of all, the sincere and godly need to take part. The second question of Lord's Day 30 asks, who are to come to the table of the Lord? You got the whole question on the table there. We mentioned before, there are some today who are of the opinion that anybody who comes in the doors here should be allowed to take part in the Lord's Supper if they feel so moved. They want what is called an open table. The celebration of the sacrament is then preceded by an explanation of what it's about. But they, they, and they, they agree with that, but they still believe that everybody who wishes should be able to take part. However, that second question of Lord's Day 30 implies already that that communion meal, the Lord's Supper, isn't just for anybody who happens to be there at the time. No, there's what you would call an official guest list. Just like at a meal, a meal at a wedding. At, at the least, the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who are of the household of faith. But even among those who belong to that family, there is the requirement that they need to be spiritually prepared to take part in that meal. We have to take part in a right spirit, in a right frame of mind and spirit, you could say. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians 11, the verses 28 and 29. It says there, But let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So this passage is about self-examination. From the context, we know that some taking part there in Corinth had much and others had little. Some who took part ate and drank lots, even got drunk, as the Apostle Paul writes, while others sat there and had sat there hungry. They had very little. Apparently, in the church in Corinth, in the early church there, the Lord's Supper had kind of turned into a regular meal. There was no discernment of what the sacrament was really about anymore. It became a meal at which there was discrimination and intemperance. So Paul rightly declares, verse 20, that it wasn't truly the Lord's Supper that these people were eating. In other words, this is not the way the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated, not the way Christ intended it. And the result was that God's anger had been kindled against the whole congregation. Paul writes, verse 30, for this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. In the Corinthian situation, the Lord had to show very clearly to his New Testament church that the Lord's Supper was not to be a kind of a free-for-all meal. Everybody bring his own stuff here. His judgment will come over those who don't discern the body, who don't keep in mind and heart what the Lord's Supper is actually about and what it's for. And see, this is why young children 
don't take part in the Lord's Supper either. We don't have pido communion. Even though they're covenant children and the Lord's Supper is a covenant feast, they cannot take part unless they're able to examine themselves and understand what it means to spiritually eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. Baptism is the sign and seal of incorporation into the covenant. doesn't require understanding. And that's what the form for baptism also states. Just as our children without their knowledge share in the condemnation of Adam, so are they without their knowledge received into grace in Christ. But the Lord's Supper is a sacrament that requires self-examination beforehand. Active discerning participation in order to receive what is promised. And that also explains why we require profession of faith in order to be admitted to the Lord's Supper celebration. The Apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy, urging him to keep up the fight of faith, and he reminded him of when he made the good confession of his faith before many witnesses. So there was a day, there was an occasion, when the young Timothy had professed his faith before many witnesses, before the church. And young people today are instructed then in home and catechism classes in faith, which, uh, in the faith which the church has gathered into systematic order from the Bible and the confessions. They're instructed in that so that they can show their sufficient knowledge and good intention when they meet with the elders of the church. It isn't so that when they feel ready that they go by themselves. No, they have to show their knowledge and intention when they meet with the elders of the church. And this then connects with Lord's Day 30 because the elders of the church are responsible for guarding the table, for ensuring that those who take part to the best of their ability are able to discern what the sacrament is about and have the good motivation to take part. The elders need to ensure that there is spiritual life in those seeking to make profession so that that spiritual life can be nourished by the Lord at his table. Otherwise, there's nothing to nourish there. And when they interview the candidates for profession, they provide the context whereby the young person can show their love for the Lord and for his word and his church. And then their profession of faith is something that they can personally make before the whole congregation so they can be welcomed by all to that meal of communion with Christ and with each other. So once profession of faith before witnesses has been made, that interview with the elders and profession of faith before those witnesses, then there can also be self-examination. And that means honestly examining your spiritual life as you also examine your physical life from time to time, your health. And that self-examination of your spiritual life isn't just a matter of then confessing a few character flaws and vowing to try harder to be a, a better person, a nicer person. This is not a kind of a self-awareness exercise. No, self-examination as we confess from the Bible in Lord's Day 30, and, and it's also outlined then in the form for Lord's Supper, it involves three 
three things. First, as the form for Lord's Supper says, let everyone consider his sins and accursedness so that he or she, detesting their sins, may humble themselves before God. In other words, consider your sins, especially also your remaining sins, the ones you still deal with and live with. Do you truly despise and hate those sins? Do you even know what they are? Do you want to get rid of them then? Also the ones you feel kind of good about when you commit them. Maybe something like alcohol abuse or looking at porn. But also envy or anger against someone which lets you feel better about yourself. Do you see your spiritual need because of those sins too then? And that's in a sign of real spiritual life, of true faith and repentance. When you see your sins, you even pray, Lord, show me my sins so that you can be delivered of them. Like the tax collector in Luke 18, he knew himself a sinner in need, in total need of God's mercy. And what does the Lord Jesus say? He went home justified rather than the other who thought a lot of himself, who thought he had made a lot of progress. And the second part of self-examination is, as expressed in the form, let everyone search his heart, whether he, also, he or she also believes the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven for the sake of the suffering and death of Christ. Do you really trust that Jesus meets your every need for forgiveness And that he makes and continues to make you completely right with God. So that there's nothing between you and God anymore. As if you had never sinned at all in your life. Do you trust that? And then the third part. Do you in your heart really want to be stronger in your faith and your obedience to the Lord? Is there that desire in your heart to become more and more what the Lord wants to make of you in the future? Do you desire spiritual progress? Or are you satisfied with yourself the way you are and you think, well, I'm good enough. I could take my chances on the future. If that's the way you think, there isn't a spiritual life That's going to be fed at the Lord's table. The thing is, only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness can and will be fed at the Lord's Supper. And that's the Lord's purpose with calling us to examine ourselves. Coming to profession of faith and then calling us to examine ourselves before every Lord's Supper so that he might make us spiritually hungry for him And so that he might feed and nourish our hungry and thirsty souls with the bread and wine as signs and seals of his sacrifice for all our sins. But you have to be hungry and thirsty. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? You realize now, right? Not just anybody, willy-nilly. Not just anybody who claims 
to have, uh, to have or want communion with the Lord? People who might, might say they have a relationship with the Lord, but they don't want any with his people, his church? And not hypocrites, as it says, Lord's Day 30, people who, have put, on, who put on a good show and deserve an Oscar, but who don't truly believe, don't have a real living spiritual life, just the shell of it. No, only those who have made profession, who have been examined by the elders, have made profession before many witnesses, and have shown that they can sincerely examine themselves, who know and express their need for Christ. You're certainly welcome if you're one of them. We come to the second part of the sermon. The unbelieving and ungodly have to be kept from the Lord's Supper. Congregation Lord's Day 30 goes on to say that admittance is denied to all those who by what they confess and show in their lives prove that they are unbelieving and ungodly. Hypocrites, of course, are unbelieving and ungodly, but they show themselves to be believing and godly. So that's, they're not included here. There's no way to stop them from attending because their repentance is not visible. Can't see it. But the catechism here is referring to people whose walk and talk are obviously not in line with what the Bible wants, what God wants in his word. And who then refuse to change in spite of the warnings to change, the call to change. You know a tree by its fruit. If the fruit is bad, then you can know that the tree is bad too. And then there's something obviously wrong with the spiritual life, with faith and devotion to Christ when there's no good fruit in someone's life. It's not their sin, though, that keeps them from the table of the Lord, but their non-repentance from sin. The Lord Jesus was fine eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, but then they were repentant tax collectors and sinners. He's not after perfect people, but he's after people who want and show they want to amend their lives. In such instances, the church in its elders has the duty, the obligation to exclude persons who are unrepentant from taking part in the Lord's Supper until they amend their lives. And then we have to think of life or doctrine. In life or doctrine. Think of what the Apostle John writes to John verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, and then he's talking about the doctrine of Christ, the teaching of Christ, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. In other words, if they hold to unbiblical doctrines, don't receive him into the church, greet him like a brother in Christ. And that would also mean don't admit him to the Lord's Supper. And then think also what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 concerning that sexually immoral man in the congregation who was living with his father's wife, his stepmother probably. 
He says there, verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Do not even eat with such a person. So such a person cannot be part of the Lord's Supper. No, Paul tells the church in Corinth to put away from themselves that evil person who was continuing to live in sexual sin. So this is a reference to church discipline, which is covered more extensively in Lord's Day 31. But the point we see here in relation to Lord's Day 30 is this. Not everybody who considers himself or herself a believer automatically has the right to be admitted to the Lord's Supper. And confessing that, I realize, might not sit very well in our society, in our culture, which embraces individual freedom and inclusivity nowadays. The world today doesn't like screening people for admittance except on airplanes. It's not fair. It's not nice. It's discriminatory to deny admission to somebody based on what they think the Bible says are on their personal life choices. But in order for Christ's church to be truly his, according to the Bible, she needs to stand by what the scripture teaches about Christ and life in him, and then the elders of the church may have to say to someone, no, you can't take part in the Lord's Supper. You haven't made profession of your faith. Or, we don't know what you stand for. There's no testimony of that. Or, the doctrine you hold to isn't biblical and you need to listen to the Bible. Or, your life isn't according to the Bible in this respect and you need to repent. Or, as I mentioned before, you don't have a testimony from your elders declaring you are sound in doctrine and life. Because via attestations, churches help each other guard their tables. And that's not something negative, but positive. For the Lord wants his supper guarded. Paul shows 1 Corinthians 11 that when the church permits ungodly people, people who are persistently unbiblical in doctrine or life, if, if the church allows them to take part in the Lord's supper, then the table is defiled. To allow openly sinful and unrepentant people to the Lord's table is to proclaim before the world that Christ has fellowship with sin and that's blasphemy. And then as Paul also shows, 1 Corinthians 11, the whole church will suffer. The anger of God begins to burn against the whole congregation. And you can think of examples in the Bible how the sin of one person in the covenant congregation brought God's anger against the whole congregation. And this, beloved, tells us that we're all responsible for the holiness of the church and the table. It's not just up to the elders as such, but all of us are responsible for guarding the holiness of the Lord's Supper and for the purity of the communion with Christ and with each other. 
The elders have the ultimate authority, but we all need to hold on to each other, hold each other accountable and work for and seek the holiness of Christ's church. Oh, when we take the bread and the wine at the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we all confess that of ourselves, we're just weak sinners. There's no way at all that we can save ourselves, make things right with God again on our own. But we take the bread and the wine looking up to Christ alone for our salvation and our life. And we come then with the desire for ourselves and for the whole church, for the whole church too, for more godliness, more holiness, more Christ-likeness. And that that celebration then we know ourselves surrounded by elders who care for us, watch over us, and brothers and sisters who watch out for us, who support us with prayers and encouragement and also admonition so that we personally can continue to embrace Christ. And when we leave afterward, his spirit will nourish and strengthen us so that we can go on in the spiritual battle of this life again until the, time, the next time the Lord's Supper is celebrated and the following time and the following until finally we can take our place at the great and eternal feast which Christ has prepared for all who love him. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the Lord's Supper to nourish our spiritual life. And we pray that we see then, too, how important it is for that supper to be guarded according to your word. Help us to see that not as a negative thing, but a positive. You've given elders that responsibility as well as the whole church in order that each of us may continue to embrace Christ as our personal Savior and never lose him. Father, hear us, we pray, for his sake. Amen.